This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, hi, hello. Welcome in to the uh, World Series-bound Washington Nationals edition of the show before the show from MILB.com. We live in a brave new world. The Washington Nationals are headed to the World Series. Hi, everyone. I'm Tyler Mon. He's Sam Dykstra. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. This feels like one of those alternate universe yeah. podcasts where, like, we, we were in some movie and they're just like, this is what's possible if you turn left instead of right. And this is the Washington Nationals are going to the World Series. That could never happen. Uh, yeah. What's funny is after they sweep the Cardinals, they've never lost an LCS game. Yeah. Technically yeah. true. The meme has died spectacularly. It is not it's it's not like, well, you know, they got past the the wild card game and then it would have left that debate as to whether or not the Washington Nationals have never won a playoff series meme could still exist. Then they win the the NLDS and you're like, all right, well, that's done. And then they just roll through the Cardinals. Um, rest in peace to Mike Schultz post division series speech. And, <laughs> uh, and yeah, they the only issue is now, of course, they got like like a week at least of just sitting around until the world series and i feel like as a uh, a denver born and bred baseball fan and a resident i feel like i've seen this movie before uh i don't remember how it ends i don't team gets scorching hot rolls through the playoffs waits around for like a week week and a half before the world series starts i i feel like i've seen it before i don't know how it ends i i don't know no, we, I, just, I, we don't have to talk about it we can just gloss over it we well, we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over the specific thing you're mentioning, but I, I do think about like the Cardinals came off a game in which they scored, what was it, 10 runs 10 in the runs first in the inning? First inning. Yeah. They were about as hot as you could get, and they rolled right into Washington and immediately just stopped. I think. Buzzsaw. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I would like to see a little bit more empirical evidence about one way or another, but I think if you're the Nats, when so much of the success this offseason has been, or this postseason has been on predicating, like, they're starting pitching yeah lining it up just so exactly how you want it yeah um you know i think is only going to be an advantage for them and yeah we'll, we'll see what happens with the lineup but i think the biggest advantage they could possibly have is in that starting rotation uh and getting it just so even if they get it to a point where you know even their their best three doesn't really go well against the Astros best three, but let's say they don't have to have Scherzer versus Cole. They can have Scherzer versus Greinke or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Take the advantages where you can get them and yeah, they can true. do that a little bit better now. And I will say that uh, Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin is a little different three-headed beast than like Jeff Francis, Aaron Cook, Josh Fogg. <laughs> so maybe the Nationals have things a little bit better structured uh than this memory but you're not bitter like i have but i don't really i can't can't nail down what it is there was of course the stat yesterday i think it's six teams have swept the league championship series and five have lost the world series um but it's a new year 
World Series is headed back to the nation's capital, and uh, that is exciting stuff. The Washington Nationals will square off with either the Houston Astros or the New York Yankees. We'll find that out coming up uh, next week. And uh, I guess it could be later this week. It's now weather is wreaking havoc with that series. Whatever. We talk about minor league baseball on this podcast. Um, so let's start doing that <laughs> as we say hi and we welcome you in. Uh, you can give us a rating or review and a subscription to this show that you love so much, the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. Uh, you can do that on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else where you can rate and review. And uh, while you're there and going to all that trouble, just give us five stars because that's uh, that's a nice thing to do um and uh you can get in touch with the show podcast at milb.com as well every week we open the show with three strikes not every week i guess we've had a couple where it's been different but most times we open with three strikes where we talk about the three topics that are burning brightest in minor league baseball and that's where we will start this week uh before we dive right into it milby's coming up the best in minor league baseball yearly um which is always fun we've got the staff vote we got the fan vote we're kind of changing some stuff up this year though sam yeah things are going to be a little bit different we're actually going to break this down next week we're going to do our typical like award show uh tyler and i will be wearing tuxedos on this audio format yeah as we do every year Um, so we'll break that down next week but just know that that is right around the corner for milby's um top offensive player top starting pitcher top relief pitcher top breakout prospect or some of the that stuff you can vote on. We've also got some other new fun uh, video categories, including stuff like, I think, best dugout moment. Uh, yeah, slash bullpen, uh, best in-game fun, best feel-good moment, stuff like that. A- a- another way to revisit the year that was in minor league baseball. Uh, but don't worry, there, there are still those major player categories that you guys can vote on and that will be breaking down in full uh, next week. It's going to be fun, so let's kick it off. Three strikes for this week's episode. Strike number one, we may have an answer to this coming up on the show today in his own uh, human form on the phone. Uh, But the Arizona Fall League is nearing the apex of its season, and with uh, just a little bit of time left in the AFL, Sam, your most valuable player favorite for the Arizona Fall League right now is whom? Yeah, so I know you were teasing a specific player there, but I'm actually going to go a little bit differently, I think. Uh, My pick right now would be Greg Dykeman uh, from the A system, the number 17 prospect for Oakland. Uh, This is a guy right now is leading the AFL in total bases. Uh, He's leading the way with seven home runs. He's leading in slugging percentage. He's leading in OPS. Uh, That slugging percentage being 741, that OPS being 1.138. Joey Bart was kind of on this track, but uh, I don't think we've discussed this yet. He's out with a hand injury, going to miss the rest of the AFL. The Giants expect him to be back in time for spring. Not require surgery, which is a point, right. an important uh, point to note. Yeah, but uh, Giants expect him to be back and healthy for spring training. Hitting the hand yeah. by pitch. Yeah, so it's too bad. Joey Bart was certainly on his way to being uh, an MVP candidate here, hitting four home runs in his first 10 games. Dykeman kind of takes over for that. One thing that I've discussed in the past is AFL MVPs typically be top prospects or, or guys right up – they're maybe not top 100 names, but right outside the cusp or something like that. Dykeman quite isn't that yet. Like I said, he, he's number 17 in the A system. Uh, kind of interesting to see him turn it on in this way because back when he was coming out of LSU a couple of years ago, the power was there for him. I think he had 19 homers in his, in his final year at LSU. Um, that was expected to be his carrying tool. It has not shown up yet in the minors for a couple different reasons. He's battled uh different injuries the last couple of years. He had a wrist injury in 2018 that limited him to 58 games. And even when he played in those games, uh, there were 
talks that he was trying to play through the wrist issue. That doesn't help your power. You only had seven homers in 58 games last year. This year plays 80 games at double A Midland, goes deep 11 times, but still finishes the year with a 675 OPS. Dealt with a shoulder injury this year. That's why he gets sent to the AFL to make up for some of those lost at bats. To see him turn it around this year is especially promising, not just because he's making up for time by getting hot, but you know, this is probably the healthy version of Dykeman. And if he's doing it against really good arms that get sent down to Arizona, uh, that's certainly going to send his stock going higher. You know, it's only 16 games. I get that. But, uh, you know, we talk to guys all the time about what's it like in the AFL. And sometimes they say it's basically an all-star game every day. Um, and usually we set the level for the AFL at about double A. This is somebody who played almost a full season at double A this year. Um, so he should be at least to the level of the pitchers and to see him take off in this way is really, really neat. Um, you know, what happens the rest of the way is possible. Somebody like Brandon Marsh, who, who Tyler was uh, just teasing there uh, in the Angels system, somebody who's second right now in OPS, or Royce Lewis, who is the AFL player of the week this this week, was named the MVP of the Fall Stars game over the weekend. Uh, either of those guys could pass, and they certainly have that top prospect threshold. Um, guys we thought were, were promising prospects coming into the year, or coming into the fall, uh, and it, have lived up to that billing so far. I think they have a little bit of a better chance as the sample size increases. But to see Dykeman do what he's doing so far, hitting 310, 397 OBP, and a 741 slugging percentage uh, is really, really neat and a good way to add some fuel to his profile. And we'll have to see what happens to that going into the offseason and potentially going into AAA next year. Strike two this week, the uh, League Championship Series wrapping up on the National League side, the Washington Nationals four-game sweep of the St. Louis Cardinals uh, and the Houston Astros as of today as we record with a two-games-to-one series lead over the New York Yankees game for tonight postponed to tomorrow. So that series has been jumbled schedule-wise. Um, but there's a lot of homegrown talent in this League Championship Series on, uh, I mean, really on all four sides. And we talked about this uh, as far as the full homegrown scope of the playoffs has gone down. Down. But on the, the LCS side, Sam, give us the rundown of the, the League Championship Series homegrown elements. Yeah, so I, I did a tool shed on this last week going into the LCS. Obviously, it hasn't aged great not even a week later because the Cardinals are already out. But still, uh, looking at the four teams that were in it, you know, I wanted to do a ranking of the five best homegrown talents. And I kind of thought if I set it at five, some of these guys will kind of separate themselves uh, in terms of, you know, obviously number five will be a little worse than some of the other systems. But I, th- it, you look at all of these teams and the foundations that they have based on guys who came up through the system is is really, really good. Uh, and you mix that with, I think, you know, the Nats. The Astros and the Yankees are three of the top spending teams in baseball right now. And you so you have that base of homegrown talent that allows you to go spend on other areas and fill in those holes. That's where success is in modern day baseball. Um, but look at the Astros. I mean, my ranking for them was Alex Bregman at one, Jose Altuve two, George Springer three, Carlos Correa four, Jordan Alvarez, who's by far the AL Rookie of the Year favorite this year at number five. Uh, a list in which Carlos Correa is four is automatically a good list, basically bar none, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, it, it's well-trod ground right now to say that the Astros built from within to get where they are now. That allows them to go trade for a Justin Verlander, allows them to go trade for Garrett Cole and Zach Greinke, uh, taking on Greinke's salary because, hey, Carlos Correa is still on a 
a cheap salary. Alex Bregman, the same thing. Um, Alvarez is in his rookie year. They keep plugging in these holes. Kyle Tucker was their top prospect in the system, just graduated game 162. Anybody else almost in this LCS would love to say he's their number five best homegrown talent. He doesn't even crack this list. Um, so the Astros getting to where they are, as much as we focus on that rotation this postseason and, and how good it's been, um, the way they've been able to basically build their infield with homegrown guys, throw George Springer out there and see him become an, a World Series MVP a couple of years ago and one of the best and most consistent outfielders in the game. And then Jordan Alvarez, oh, by the way, we don't know what position to do with him. What are we going to do? Oh, wait, he's just going to become our DH and be one of the best left-handed sluggers the second he starts. Uh, the Astros keep churning out this talent, and that's really, really special. Uh, for the Yankees, I had Aaron Judge at one for kind of obvious reasons, you know, when he's healthy and everything is clicking, uh, he is one of the best right-handed sluggers in the game. It felt like a down year for him, and yet he still finished with a 4.6 war over 102 games. That's kind of crazy. Uh, Brett Gardner, I have it too. Gardner was basically signed as a fourth outfielder. It's like, hey, you're a Yankee lifer. We want you back in the fold. We'll figure it out if things happen. Giancarlo Stanton injury hurt them. Aaron Hicks injuries hurt them. Brett Gardner got a lot of playing time this year. Has been with them for a long time. One stat that kind of surprised me. He is third all time in Yankees history in stolen bases behind only Derek Jeter and Ricky Henderson. Um, shows you how long Gardner has been around, uh, but also important to remember, he was homegrown. And that's why I think gets him number two is that they've got a lot of value out of somebody who they took out of the College of Charleston at, with a third round pick all the way back in 2005. Uh, Gary Sanchez, Glaber also, Torres. I just, I just want to jump in real quick to point out, Ricky yeah, Anderson yeah. was a Yankee for five years. Oh, yes. Yeah. Second on that franchise's stolen. He stole 326 bases in five years. I had that discussion in the office. It's insane. When I discovered that Gardner stat, and I was like, who, who wants to guess who is second all time in Yankee Seals? And everybody was batting around That's ideas. Nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ricky Anderson also, by the way, played from 1979 to 2003. Just let, it all, just, let it, just let it all sit in and marinate with you. 25 years in professional baseball. At the major Four league. decades. At the major Four league. Four decades. Of, yeah. It's absolutely yeah. insane. Drafted in 1976, so he played, yeah, for almost 30 years professionally. Anyway, please continue. Ricky Henderson no, is no. incredible. It's no, the, Ricky Henderson is one of my ballers. favorite baseball reference pages to just fall fall down the rabbit hole. Same thing yeah. with, like, Pedro Martinez, where you're just like, this was possible at some point. Right. What happened? He also uh, played uh, two years of indie ball after his uh, big league career was over. So uh, he was playing as a member of the San Diego Surf Dogs in the Independent Golden Baseball League in 2005, and he batted at 46 years old. Granted, he was playing an indie ball, and it was not a, a super glamorous uh, stop in his career, but he batted 270 with an 859 OPS, and he stole 16 of 18 bases successfully at 46. Did Ricky ever retire what? officially? I don't think he did, actually. One of my favorite uh, Ricky story everybody's got a, a ricky story that they love but um when ricky anderson was a free agent very late in his career uh this is prior to the 2001 season when he landed back with the san diego padres um after he had been there in 96 and 97 he uh evidently called kevin towers the then general manager of the padres and he left him a voicemail that just said kt ricky needs work and hung up the phone 
<laughs> and that was it. And then he went on to uh, play in 123 games at 42 years old for the Padres that year and uh, stole 25 bases and also walked 81 times against 84 strikeouts. What a ridiculous athlete. Ricky Anderson yeah. was unbelievable. Just crazy. And it makes you wish like Billy Hamilton could reach base a little right. bit better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, – God, what a guy. Anyway – Anyway, continue. no, that's fine. Um, I'm always good for a good Ricky Henderson aside. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the Yankees. You know, I mentioned Gary Sanchez. Glaber Torres I included because technically he was a prospect in the system. Yes, he came over from the Cubs uh, and they had to develop him a little bit more. Uh, Brian Cashman had one of my favorite quotes a couple of years ago saying that Glaber Torres had to be baptized in the cold waters of the Eastern League. Uh before he can get pushed to triple a uh just talking about somebody who hadn't played in cold weather before and I, I thought that was a great quote um so yeah a lot of what the yankees were seeing now again going out and getting john carlos stanton and assuming a lot of money on that is because of what they've been able to you know build in the middle of their lineup with aaron judge and and glaber torres and gary sanchez um and then you see luis severino who has had a little bit of a down year because of injuries but um is getting important starts for them this year they still have hopes he could be their ace uh the yankees haven't quite spent on pitching in the same way that we're maybe accustomed to since cc sabathia or something like that but they are hopeful severino or domingo herman uh can kind of fill those roles around james paxton and masahiro tanaka uh for the nats you know nl champion nats putting this list together it was just like oh yeah well you know ryan zimmerman is is mr national so he's got to go on there somewhere and oh wait juan soto had one of the most exciting climbs through the minors that i've ever seen uh last year so he's probably got to go ahead of him oh and steven strasburg was their number one overall pick and everybody's thought everybody thought would be you know god's gift to pitching and has been really 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 good especially in the postseason so he's got to go number two and oh wait anthony rendon is an NL MVP candidate this year, and he was a draft pick too, and maybe not as heralded as uh, Strasburg or Harper, but has arguably been a better, better major leader than either of those two guys. All right, so he's got to go number one, and all right, let's count Trey Turner because technically he was in the system for a little while too. Um, you know, a lot has been made about what this Nats team isn't and how kind of surprising this is. They don't have a bullpen. They don't have whatever. Um, but the the big core of this team, the reason you're able to let go of a Bryce Harper, uh, who would assuredly be on this list somewhere, is because you can bring up, you know, Juan Soto has basically been as productive, if not a little bit more than Harper, for much at a much younger age, and he's only going to grow from there. Victor Robles comes up and and works in the system this isn't as strong a system as it once was i think i said a couple of weeks ago this is probably the worst farm system in uh the playoffs this year but they made some trades you know they went out and gotten adam eaton um which which cost prospects um you know they, they've traded some of those bigger places to get to where they are now and uh it's been really promising to to see them kind of build on this foundation that they've built uh go up beyond that and you know as uh, i think it was chelsea james who used who works for the washington post used to cover the nationals says you know baseball is a game of inches and if a couple inches went a couple different ways for the nats in previous years they're probably in the lcs before this is, and this isn't a big story uh, but the fact that they are consistently close and finally break through this year, I think, is a testament to the way that they did turn some of those higher picks in Strasbourg and Rendon, but also some of those international signees 
in you know Juan Soto and Robles into really quality pieces and now it's coalescing around this one team that we'll see what happens with Strasburg we'll see what happens with Rendon this offseason uh, Rendon definitely a free agent Strasburg can potentially opt out of his deal and become a free agent himself uh, but the, the core is there in Washington and that's why they have been returning to the playoffs year in and year out and strike three this week. We are uh, just a couple of weeks away from uh, the final large international baseball event on the 2019 calendar, the Premier 12 tournament, which will take place uh, in four different countries, opening round in Mexico, Taiwan, and Korea with the Super Round and the Championship Round set to be held in Japan. The United States USA Baseball has announced its roster. Uh, we actually have some breaking news, which, of course, will not be breaking by the time you get this. But uh, just 45 minutes ago, USA Baseball announced that uh, manager Joe Girardi, no longer the manager of the Premier 12 squad for the U.S., Scott Brocious, who is the uh, senior director of player development for USA Baseball, has taken over uh, as the manager for that USA Baseball squad. And that is because... According to the release uh, from USA Baseball, and not really any surprise here, um, Joe Girardi, who was named the manager of Team USA in August, quote, has stepped down from his role with Team USA as he pursues open managerial opportunities in Major League Baseball. So obviously probably on the verge of signing on with somebody, Joe Girardi as a, a manager. So Scott Brocious will take over the squad, but it is a really, really talented squad. Uh, Sam put together a story on this Premier 12 roster last week when it was announced. Seven MLB Pipeline Top 100 prospects are on that roster, including fifth-ranked Joe Adele of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Uh, Chicago White Sox prospect Andrew Vaughn, who is a number 21. Uh, Drew Waters of the Atlanta Braves, he's number 23. 34th-ranked Alec Bohm. Xavier Edwards, number 72. Uh, Bohm with the Phillies and Edwards with the Padres. 88th-ranked uh, overall prospect and Phillies prospect, Alex teammate Spencer Howard and Dalton Varsho. The uh, catcher slash possibly future outfielder uh, with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He is the 100th ranked overall prospect, according to MLB Pipeline. Those are the seven uh, on this 28-man roster announced ahead of this tournament. But this is a really loaded group, and there's some interesting kind of veteran guys who are mixed in, um, some former top 100 guys, some guys who have been very highly regarded or maybe are set to make that climb back into the top 100. Um, An interesting group for the U.S. Yeah, no, I really like this mix just for guys getting additional playing time. You know, you, you mentioned the Adels, the Bohms, uh, guys who are actually in the AFL now are, are apparently just going to continue working. Um, but outside of the top 100 names you mentioned, you know, Bobby Dahlbuck will be there. We just named him a Red Sox org all-star this week. Uh, Tanner Houck, who we've had on the podcast in the past, he gets sent there. Brent Rooker, who we've had on the podcast in the past kind of an upper level slugger for the twins he's getting sent uh, the selection process on, on this is kind of interesting I, I don't think they're allowed to take players who aren't on the 40 man right uh, so so you know that's why you're not seeing major leaguers who didn't make the postseason or something like that on this team uh, so the selection process in that aspect is, is kind of fascinating to me like why not just take all the top 100 prospects why is it this group it's probably just the guys who said yes and had their organization say yes um, but Tyler, I'm more interested in hearing from you, the person who's actually going to be calling this tournament, how this usually goes. Like, how does this mix come together? Uh, does it usually get spread out for playing time or is it just, hey, we got to go with our best players, uh, whether you are a good prospect or not? If you are not one of our best nine, you will not be starting. 
Yeah, generally it's that way. And uh, I know USA Baseball had a really, really comprehensive identification and uh, sort of monitoring process for this group that started prior to the season. They, From what I have heard and read, they had a list of about 100 guys they were going to monitor throughout the minor league season. And it's a tricky spot for USA Baseball because you have to make sure that none of these guys obviously we're currently 40-man guys or have the potential to be added to the 40-man by the time this tournament starts because if you're put on the 40-man at the end of the World Series all of a sudden you're off of this roster so USA Baseball had to get a good idea of if these guys were going to be fully eligible throughout the entirety of this tournament which will be from November 2nd to the 17th Um, but four years ago this tournament was held for the first time and I don't want to say that the roster was thrown together, but I think the uh, – and it was a very good roster. It was a really talented group. There are a lot of guys on that team that have gone on to play in the big leagues and have some success already. Brett Phillips was on that team. Uh, Jacob May was on that team formerly with the, the Chicago White Sox at the major league level. Adam Engel, same way. Um, they had some really talented guys on that roster. But the the tournament, there were a lot of details of that tournament that weren't finalized until much later on in the summer. So I think it was a much shorter timetable that was compressed to put that roster together. And they still finished second place in that tournament um this one this year usa baseball has had a plan for this for the last four years and to be able to pull a a 28-man roster together a quarter of which are top 100 prospects are really interesting um components to this group and yeah they'll they'll play the best team it's not really a a thing where usa baseball is focused on you know getting everybody playing time and all that type of stuff um and it's going to be interesting having scott brocious be the guy who is running this now uh with you know not a lot of managerial experience but a guy who's worked in player development with with usa baseball for a while and has uh, a lot of guys on his staff who are um willie randolph was the manager of this team four years ago he's going to be one of the coaches on the staff um anthony sanders a coach in the rockies organization who was managed um he was added to the staff actually with joe girardi stepping out um so there are uh, a lot of interesting things to watch with this group but it's uh I think, you know, when you're USA Baseball, you go into any competition expecting to at least play for a title, if not win the whole thing. It's a lot different in this one because U-12s, U-15s, U-18s, the U.S. has either dominated or mostly dominated those tournaments over the last decade. This one is different because you're playing with these senior-level, professional-level rosters, and no other country limits the inclusion of its best players so japan is sending an all-star team basically from nippon professional baseball korea has been building its roster out of the korea baseball organization for the last four years um chinese taipei the team that plays for the nation of taiwan uh they've got an all cpbl team pretty much uh, chinese professional baseball league which is taiwan's highest level league australia is the same way all of their pro guys with the exception of their 40-man guys guys like um you know liam hendricks of the oakland athletics and lewis thorpe of the minnesota Minnesota Twins, for example. Um, so USA Baseball is in an interesting spot with this one because it's like you got to put your best roster together, but not all of your best players. It's not the WBC where they're going to be taking big leaguers. Um, but it's cool for us and it's cool for our purposes because we get to watch these prospects play on big stages, um, and it's fun. I mean, I remember four years ago talking with guys, especially Brett Phillips, about you know what the experience was like uh, for a tournament that really a lot of these guys didn't know exactly what it was going to be like going into it. Um, and this time around, it's a much larger scope with the, the opening round being held in three separate countries. Um, I will have this U.S. team all the way through. I'll have them in Mexico for the start of the opening round on November 2nd. They get started uh i believe against mexico that night i had the schedule open a second ago um but they uh 
they'll play really, really talented teams while they're down there. Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and the Netherlands are the other three uh, who will be in Mexico to get things started with the U.S. Um, they play – actually, the opening game for the U.S. is against the Netherlands on November 2nd. is the afternoon game. Then they play Mexico the next night, and then the Dominican on the third night of the tournament. So um, it's going to be fun, and there are some interesting dudes uh, who are on these other rosters uh, as well, you know, guys that are kind of what we talked about with uh, – oh, yeah, I remember that dude. Uh, you know, we were talking about after the the Europe and Africa Olympic qualifier. Um, so yeah, if you're you know super excited to see Jair Jurgens pitch, for example, uh, he's, <laughs> he's on the Netherlands roster. Um, so yeah, it, it should be a lot of fun. So uh, and especially with the fact that this uh, the first round of this tournament for the United States is in Mexico, they are at human game times, so you can actually watch those first few games. Uh, Twelve o'clock local time in Guadalajara for the first game of the tournament, which I believe will be three o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time on Saturday, November second. Um, then a seven o'clock start time the next three days for uh, or next two days rather for the U.S. So uh, it should be fun. Should be some fun yeah no i'm very much looking forward to just seeing how those lineups like you said get put together yeah. Who, yeah. who who does make the cut like xavier edwards i can imagine being a pinch runner type situation right um because he finished the year at class a advanced i mean making getting him the jump over somebody like jake cronenworth or something right. like that somebody with more upper level experience but you know scott broach is taking over Maybe he has a different way of evaluating these guys once, yeah, he, once he looks at it. That that whole breakdown will be fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I have a, a color analyst who is, uh, I believe, lined I'm not going to say – I don't think I can say who it is yet, but I have a color analyst whose work you have – probably taken in i'm very excited to to work with uh we'll leave it at that i leave for mexico <laughs> today so it'll it'll be out there soon but I'm, I'm really excited for the broadcast i think we're gonna have a ton of fun that's a tease so. if i ever heard one <laughs> so that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show We head down to the Arizona Fall League on this week's episode of the show before the show where we find the second-ranked prospect in the Angels organization who is tearing his way through the AFL as a member of the Mesa Solar Sox so far this, uh, can't really call it an offseason when you're down in the AFL playing. Brandon Marsh joins the show. Brandon, what's going on? How's Arizona treating you? Hey, guys. How's, how's everything going? It's uh, going good out here, you know, just burning in the sun. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, just playing some baseball man can't complain so tell us about this experience so far the numbers obviously have been outstanding for you uh in mesa 13 games so far as of today we're recording on wednesday but a 373 average a 1058 ops um the afl is such a fun environment because you guys are kind of on an all-star team and you're playing other all-star teams and it's such a different experience uh from everything else really throughout your baseball career what has it been like for you these few weeks you've been down there it's it's just been a bunch of competition, and uh, I think all all of us players here love it just because, I mean, we're able to have fun, win or loss, and uh, just go out there and compete with a lot of the a lot of the best guys in the minor leagues, man. it's uh, It's been a blessing for myself and a lot of my uh, fellow teammates to be here. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, and it's like an extended, it's, ex, it's an extended period to our season. Some of us thought it was going to be like, Oh, uh, we got another month and a half of this ball. I want to go and see my family and stuff like that. But uh, I think we've made the most of it here. Uh, it's been it's been great. It's been a great experience. 
Brandon, when the Angels told you that you were going to go down there, did they give you specific things that they want you to work on? Did they tell you about, you know, the the not necessarily obviously an innings limit for somebody who's a position player, but the amount of game time that you're going to get? What's the conversation like in that regard? Or is it basically more just we're going to send you down there and we want to see what you can do against top-level competition like is in the AFL? Basically, what the the second the second half of that is what you what you said. Uh, just they were sending me here. Uh, you know, I missed a little bit of time during the season with an ankle injury, uh, so I was coming to make up a few games here. But uh, you know, I didn't have an, I didn't have a specific number of bats I needed to to get in. I didn't have a specific number of games. I was just I'm here to compete against the against the competition here, and uh, you know, it's been it's been a blessing. Yeah, and what do you kind of attribute the reason why you have been able to get off to such a strong start? Stoddard mentioned it's only been 13 games, but you finished the season really strong as well, hitting 357 in 26 games in, in August with a 949 OPS over that stretch. It kind of feels like you're continuing what you were doing the last couple of weeks at, at AA Mobile. Um, what allowed you to turn it on in the way that you did, and, and how have you carried that to the AFL? I've just I've just been uh, keeping it simple and uh, just staying within myself, not trying to do too much, not trying to be a hero, you know, uh, just, you know, go up here, hit the, see the ball, hit the ball, find barrel and just let the, let baseball take care of itself. Uh, it's been a, to go on and answer your question, it's been a long process for me in the box. Uh, just a lot of swing changes and stuff like that. So uh, a lot of hard work put in off the field and the cages and stuff like that every day. And uh, I just give credit to our hitting, our hitting, uh, our hitting staff. So uh, we uh, we've been through the ringer together. We've been on top. We've been at rock bottom, and uh, right now things are just going pretty well. And uh, we just gotta keep our heads down, just keep it rolling. Yeah, and when you talk about going through many swing changes, I know that's a process a lot of minor leaguers go through trying to find something that clicks. Um, what were some of the changes you made, and what do you feel like has clicked in, in terms of your approach at the plate? Honestly, I've I've just just kept it like super simple. I I couldn't even like honestly, I can't even explain to you like what like goes through my mind and what we've changed. I just I'm just standing up tall, staying tall, and then just trying to match the plane of the ball. And uh, you know, it's I've I've went through like a lot of path work the last year and a half because I've always came from such a low slot and that is not that that was not going to play for me in the future so it's uh it's been just a step-by-step process and right now I'm just trying to be just, like just athletic and just let my body and my eyes do the work man hmm. and when you talk about being athletic you mentioned before coming back from the ankle sprain it was a rate grade two ankle sprain I watched video of it before this interview you were we came around, I think, on a triple, and then you were going back to the bag, and it looked like something just kind of popped in your ankle. Um, talk about coming back from that process, especially as an outfielder. You're somebody who's so reliant on your legs, uh, keeping sure. up with you and being able to carry you. Uh, what was it like going through that injury process, the rehab process, and how long did it take for you to feel like yourself again coming out of it? Well, that, uh, the timing of the ankle injury was just terrible for me just because – I started the year off super slow, couldn't get on base, uh, even if no matter how hard I tried, it just wasn't falling my way. And a couple months in the season, it started clicking a little bit, and uh, I started to take stride. And uh, I was just starting to like feel like uh, baseball's feeling easy again, but it really it's not. It was just I was just on a little hot streak, 
right before the all-star break and uh i tweaked the ankle and uh it just it really it it was it, it brought me down a lot just because i was like i don't want to come back and i don't want to i don't want to start like i started the season you know and i don't want to come back like i started the season and uh luckily a lot of guys worked with me in arizona just to maintain what like what i was doing whenever i left when things were going well and i came back and it felt good it was like it was like i never even got hurt and so that was that made me feel really good about the remainder of the season just because I never had to fight back out of that slump, that hole. And uh, just from then on, we just kept going. And the 14 games prior to the injury, you hit 392 with a 1080 OPS. You were a 261 hitter on May 17th. And the day of the injury, you're a 292. To to kind of keep yourself mentally ready to get back, and obviously, like you said, it relies so much on the, the people around you and the, the work that you're doing. But that frustration of being in a, a spot where you feel so good, you got two triples the day that the injury comes, a three-for-four day. Um, when when does it kind of kick in the the feeling of like, all right, there's no time to, to feel sorry for myself about this. I got to be back out here in a few weeks. Is is that a tough thing to get over in those initial moments after you suffer an injury like that? One hundred percent. I felt like I was at like rock bottom, sitting on the training table, looking at my ankle, man. Just because it was the best I've felt in so long, and at, at the plate, and then I just I just got knocked back down. And so it was. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, it was. I was upset. I was feeling bad. But like you said, the uh, the guys around me, man, they all picked me up told me I'd be back and I'd be ready to go I'd come back stronger come back even better and uh just the, the, the I had to get back on the field the rehab process I just I just attacked it and uh it uh just really motivated me to come back and to be out there and with with the guys that I played with all year and years past and uh just to try to help just try to help them win games and just have fun on the field man it's also your first season at Double A in which that happens, and for so many guys, that jump—I mean, for everybody—that jump is probably the most difficult in pro ball. You go from A ball to Double A, um, yeah. and for that to happen in the middle of a Double A season, I feel like would tank a lot of years, and that doesn't happen to you. The jump that you make—you go from from Burlington to Inland Empire in 2018, and a great season at both levels there. Going from from High A to Double A this year, what stood out the most to you about the Double A level? The pitching, man. It uh. Obviously, on the defensive side, everything stayed the same for me. I'm still going to be aggressive in the outfield. I'm still going to try to throw people out and give it give it all I got. And uh, but the offensive side of the game for me, if the start of the season, if you look at the numbers, they were they were pretty brutal, and I knew that. Everyone knew that, so I had to make a change. But uh, it was the pitching was just unbelievably the difficult level increased by a huge amount, and it uh. I was watching those pitches, like you know, a pitcher that he'll throw a curveball or backdoor slider is like a little get me over. And if you don't, if you don't take your chances on like those pitches, which I didn't like to at the time, I'm down in a hole. And most of the time, these pitches are good enough; you're not going to get back out of the hole. So, huh. I uh, I just changed my approach a little bit, and I just started being a little more aggressive at the plate because so if they throw that get me over, I don't want to get down 0-1 to those guys because they're good enough to to end up. Winning the battle against you, you know, no matter who you are in the box. And uh, once I just started taking my chances on those pitches, that they were just trying to get the, just trying to get an advantage count on me. I feel like things started started going a lot better. And you know, spinning off of that, Double A is kind of the level in which we start to talk about guys at least seeing the major leagues 
over the hill. You know, guys have jumped from double A to the majors in the past and it starts to feel a little bit real there. Uh, you played part of the season anyway with, with Joe Adele. You're playing with him now. I've seen pictures of you guys in the AFL. It seems like at times you guys are kind of attached at the hip in kind of a very friendly huh. way. Uh, how much do you guys talk about your future in the Angels organization and potentially you know, roaming the outfield in Anaheim together? Obviously, Mike Trout is already there. It could be Mike Trout and you two guys. Um, how much do you guys talk about that being your future, which seems very close now? Believe it or not, we, we actually – that, like, never pops up in our conversations. I know it sounds weird, but uh, it we we just like to take it day by day. We like to try to win the day and just move on to the next day and focus on the next starter we have to face, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I have We have thought about it, but we, we never talk about it. Uh, it, it is a surreal feeling to think of having Joe and a guy like Mike Trout and uh, and the outfield partnered with you. Uh, but uh, we still have to put in the work, Joe, and I still have to make it there and find out a way to stay there. So we we got we got we got some ways to go, but uh, I think we're built for the task, and we're gonna we're just gonna keep attacking day by day. Hmm. And I'll kind of spin that a different way then. When you look at your game now and the way it's developed and the way you were heating up in the AFL and, and some of the other things you're showing there as well, uh, you know, what would you say is your most major league ready tool right now? What are you most confident about in your game? I feel very confident in, uh, in all aspects of my game, but I know others think otherwise, which is fair. It's their opinion. But uh, I think uh, probably the best answer would, to, would for me to uh, – Say I feel like I can I can play defensively I I can play defensively right now uh, with uh, with the best of them just because I just I just have that confidence uh, for my defensive side of the game and uh, I know I still everyone still has some has some uh, tweaks they got to do with the play in order to compete with the best of the best up there in the show so uh, I plan to do that in the future and uh, I'm ready for whatever's in front of me so yeah. Brandon, the the draft process in 2016, let's go back a few years. Um, you're okay. a, a multi-sport high school guy, um, and you get drafted by the Angels. Second round, you end up signing with the Angels and, and going to play pro ball. And we're we're in this era now where we, we hear so much talk about single-sport specialization and multi-sport athletes and, and guys and their ability to stay healthy, apparently, you know, especially as it comes to pitchers and all that. But I want to ask from, from your point of view – what was it about baseball? Because I know you were committed to go play college baseball at Kennesaw State, correct? Yes. So what is it about, you know, for so long we're all told how baseball is dying and kids don't care about baseball and blah, blah, blah. And then you get these incredible young athletes, dudes like yourself and Joe and all these other players who are immensely promising young athletes. Michael Hermosillo is another guy in your organization who I know was uh, recruited to play Division I football um, and chose baseball. And obviously the component of money is there, but what is it about baseball? What what does your love for baseball come from and, and why did you pick baseball? So for me, growing up, I was always the smaller guy on the field, and no matter what age, no, what like what team, I was always the little guy. And which is funny now because and, you're listed at six four two fifteen. Yeah, no, I know this is, it's crazy, man. But um, the uh, and so I, and on the football field as well, I was I was always the smallest guy, and uh, I feel like me myself being as small as I was in order to stay on the field and 
being able to give it, being able to compete with the guys that are a lot bigger than me on both sides of the team, on like both teams. I had to, I had to work my butt off, man. I had to, I had to do a lot more than everyone else just to, just so I can get some playing time, you know. And once my body grew, I, I feel like that helped me out in the long run, just because I'm not going to take it, I'm not going to take anything for granted, you know. And uh, to answer your question. Being small in the football field and being small in the baseball field is a little different, you know. <laughs> so, I feel like you can still like you look at Altuve, man. Yeah, he's one of the smallest guys on the field, but one of the best guys on the field. So he's still given his opportunity, no matter the size and strength of him, even though he's an incredible baseball player. But uh, if you take a small guy and put a small guy on a football field, he's not going to be able to do as much. So I just I felt like base. I always leaned a little bit more towards baseball, just because. I felt like there was more hope in that sport growing up. So, yeah. All right, Brandon, we'll, we'll end on a couple fun ones here real quick. But uh, one that I wanted to ask, you, you played for Mobile this season, as we've discussed. This was the last season of the Mobile Bay Bears. They're moving next year to become the Rocket City Trash Pandas. We'll put the discussion of the name off to the side. But what were your favorite memories of playing in Mobile itself and um, getting to play in Hank Aaron Stadium and, and, you know, just getting that last year there in that city? I mean, it's always it's always fun to be a part of be a part of a team that has a farewell season at a stadium. You know, just even though we didn't we didn't win the Southern League, that would have been super, super cool. A cool story to write about. But uh, it was it's it's something that myself and my teammates will uh just take to our graves, man, just because we're we were the last team to ever play for the Mobile Bay Bears in the history that they had. So it uh it was super fun, but the most fun memories, they were actually just just locker room memories, man. Just at pre game, post game the the music, the uh, the dancing, the partying in the locker room. It was that that's that's always gonna be some of the most fun times for me. Is just the group of guys that I was able to play with. We're, we're an unbelievable group of guys. Couldn't, couldn't have asked for any better, any any better dudes. So it was the, the off the field stuff was by far more fun than any of the accolades that we all accomplished on the field. And uh, kind of moving forward, or you know, back to the Arizona Fall League. Now you played a couple games at Salt River Fields. They're a talking stick, and one of the big points about that this year is that that is the place where the Automated strike zone, the robot umpires, whatever you want to call them, that's where that's coming in. Uh, we talked last week to Nick Neidert, who's a pitcher, who's gone through that process there. You're working through it as a hitter. What has been in your experience working a game in which there's been a robot umpire? Side note, Nick Neidert's actually my roommate, so we talk about it all the oh, time. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but um, I don't know. I'm kind of I'm in and out on it just because you have a guy throwing 100, like Boz, you know, you get, he can throw a ball two inches off the plate and fool an umpire because of how hard he throws, which is all credit to him. Like great, great pitcher, great guy. And, but with the automated zone, you're not going to get that. It's going to be perfect. But on the, the bad side as a hitter, they can throw a curveball up at, up at the catcher's uh, face mask and it's going to nick the top of the zone or vice versa, the bottom of the zone. And the catcher's going to catch it on the ground. And you get in the umpire. I mean, it's not on the umpire; it's on the zone. But uh, and the and the, and the guy's going to get rung up on a ball that's probably never going to get called by a human umpire. Uh, so 
me personally, I like just having a human umpire behind the play just because there's human error, both good and for the bad. And I just feel like that's, that's part of the game of baseball. And, you know, I've had a lot of people ask me about it and I'd still prefer having a human, a human, human error behind the plate. Yeah, fair enough. All right. So we'll end on this one. Uh, you are a Buford Georgia native. Um, you know, you've played all over in minor league baseball. You played, you know, places like Orem and Burlington and Inland Empire and, and Mobile, as we just discussed. Uh, you play in the Los Angeles Angels system. Um, but now you get a chance when this offseason is over. You know, do you plan on going back to Georgia? And when you do, what is the one thing you look forward to most specifically about Georgia about going home? So yes, I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm going to stay with my parents. <laughs> I'm going to stay there as long. I'm going to stay there as long as I can. But uh, I'm just messing with you. But yeah, I'll, I'll be back at my parents' house. Uh, the one thing I look forward to is just just seeing my family first, uh, and uh, just because I never get to see them a lot, obviously, as of just just because I'm always out here just playing ball, which I love to do, and just see my friends, the guys I talk to every day. Uh, via FaceTime, phone call, text, and uh, just looking to make memories with them, just like every off season, you know, just having fun times, taking trips, chilling for a little bit, letting the body rest, and uh, getting back into the grind. Brandon Marsh, the second-ranked prospect in the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim organization. You can follow at Brandon underscore Marsh 22 on Twitter. Make sure uh, that you nail down the right one because there's a million Brandon Marshalls who play in the NFL, and you get to be the Brandon (laughs) Marsh who plays baseball. It's got to be kind of annoying on the tweets, I would imagine. But, uh, Brandon, thanks so much for the time, man. Continue all success in uh, in the fall league, and uh, we'll be watching as we head toward 2020. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on today. Into the uh, middle stretch of October, Benjamin Hill joins the show as we're kind of out of the the postseason, um, the initial decompressing, I guess, of uh, of the regular season for minor league front offices across the country. And uh, Ben is here to start telling us about the lead up to 2020. Hi, Ben. Hello, Tyler. And hello, Sam Dykstra sitting to my left in conference room 5V. Uh, you know, we were talking here in New York City uh, on the same day in which ALCS Game four was rained out in this very same New York City. Mm. It was raining what, outside our window. As we I was going to ask if it was how bad it was. It did not look. It looked ugly in all the pictures I've seen. It appears that the true ugliness is yet to come. Oh, great. That's fun. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's never any anxiety with that. I don't know how anybody ever, like, wants to work in scheduling or logistics. I would be a nightmare in that role. But thankfully, I don't uh, I don't have to, so we don't have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> let's get started with uh, Ben is kicking off his uh, making of a promo schedule series with the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, which is uh, something that um, we were talking about off here before we started recording. I feel like the, the average minor league fan – you go to a game throughout the season and it's like salute to grammar night. And you're like, what on earth? How does something like this even come about? This is a, a cool thing. The inner workings of minor league baseball. This is kind of the lifeblood, the promo schedule in so many ways. Um, give us a, the lowdown on what the series is going to be like. Yeah, well, I did a variation on this series last year uh, with Nate Carant, uh, the promotions director for the Charleston River Dogs. And uh, with that series, ended up focusing on how one specific promo developed over the course of an offseason. And that promotion, uh, spoiler alert, turned out to be their NBA draft night 
promo in the beginning of the season in which they wore you know, first of its kind theme jerseys. Um, if you guys may recall, they kind of modeled the way that uh, NBA players are when they're, when they're first drafted by the NBA, uh, where there was writing on the inside of the jersey the same way that uh, NBA players lift back their jackets to reveal logos on the inside. Anyhow, that was then. This is now. So expanding the idea this time to not just be about one promotion, uh, but to kind of say, okay, in the essentially six months we have, uh, six plus months uh, of the offseason in minor league baseball, uh, how does a promotion schedule develop? And uh, this year I chose David Ratz with the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp uh, to focus on to be kind of the uh, centerpiece. Um, you know, he would say, don't make me the centerpiece. This is a staff wide thing. He does not want this to be, you know, the David Ratz series <laughs> of articles. Uh, but he's going to be my main contact for this series uh, about how the promotion schedule develops in Jacksonville. And I chose the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp and David Ratz because if you do follow minor league baseball, especially over the last couple of years, you know, Jacksonville rebranded uh, in 2016 as the Jumbo Shrimp, new ownership. And uh, since then, they've been one of the best uh, promo teams in the game. Uh, they've done promotions that we've certainly talked about on this podcast. Um, you know, we've certainly talked qu quite a bit about their literal two for Tuesday in which they only allowed one young fan who had cancer and his father into the ballpark and catered the whole experience to them. Uh, they did a Miami Vice night promotion with uh, really cool alternate logos. They did the ramen noodle uh, pillow giveaway, which was uh, very popular, and so on and so forth. So they're a team I can count on uh, to have some really creative ideas. And uh, so going to follow it through the entire offseason. And... Um, also focusing on one of their first promotions that's going to come out, uh, they're trying to tweak the you know, superhero theme night concept by creating, along with Brandios, their own you know, jumbo shrimp-related um, heroes and villains to kind of put a new spin on that and not just use pre-existing characters, but to kind of in-house create an entire narrative based on characters of their own creation. So that's one of the first things they've really got going uh, as they develop their promotion schedule. I mean, that one is much further along, and they'll be teasing that all year, but uh, there'll be much more to come. And I think it will be interesting to say, you know, to kind of take a look at, you know, over this long period of time, how do you put this together? Where does it start, and what's the end game, and what deadlines do you have to meet along the way? Yeah, so how many of these stories in the series are you planning on doing? I mean, like, how often are you going to be checking in with these guys? I haven't developed in a specific schedule yet, but I'm thinking at least four. Roughly, you know, this will come be come up in mid-October. I would say at least one more before the end of the calendar year, and then at least two more um, in early 2020 before the season starts. So I'd say it's at least a four-part series. But as it develops, uh, depending what there is to cover and depending on what comes out along the way, it could be more than that. As well as it could be, you know, follow-up stories after the promotion schedule is announced to kind of check in on how certain things went that were in development development during the offseason the uh series coming to the site at milb.com and uh with that looking forward on instagram ben is taking a look back uh it's 10 years of touring around the minor leagues and uh at the ben's biz on instagram you're going to take a look at the offseason uh over the offseason at all these trips um that you've been fortunate enough to take over the last decade uh which is super cool for the nostalgia nerds like me and so many of us out there um tell us about the the trip down all the memory rabbit holes right well you know in the off season i think anyone who works in minor league baseball especially if you're in uh you know in an editorial role such as uh we are in different ways you know you, you're gonna hit periods of the off season where you can't help but look back and my career has been long enough there's a lot to look back on uh, but, you know, one thing I've really struggled with over the last couple of years is uh, Instagram per on a personal level. Uh, I use Twitter quite a bit. I feel like I have a decent following on 
Twitter at Ben's Biz. Uh, a lot of people engage with me on uh, Twitter, and I feel like uh, a lot of the people who know my work the best are the, a lot of the people on Twitter. Not necessarily, but a lot of them. Instagram, it's not as verbal. It seems more of the moment. I often don't know what to do if I'm not actually on the road. Uh, so I had this idea this offseason to let's just make it a huge offseason series and one that now I've started it, I realize will probably go into the off se- or into the season and then probably just on forever. It's going to be a lot of material, but I'm just chronologically looking back, starting in 2010 at every ballpark I visited, uh, sharing photos and some memories from those events, and uh, hopefully just gaining some more traction on uh, Instagram and just having a good way to look back on things. So it started this week, uh, you know, with my very first uh, ballpark trip, uh, which was you know motivated by a very specific event. I think I've talked about it before, but in 2010, the Mobile Bay Bears, who just played their last season in 2019, uh, they relocated Hank Aaron's childhood home to the grounds of the stadium, which is already named Hank Aaron Stadium. And they had a huge opening for that Hank Aaron childhood home and museum. And in attendance that day was Will- Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Reggie Jackson, Bruce Suter, Bob Feller, RIP, Ozzie Smith, another Mobile native, Bud Selig, and on and on. And I was the only national writer to attend, and this is my first road trip ever. I was in way over my head, but that's how it all started. It started with the Mobile Bay Bears, and uh, moving on from that uh, to more Alabama stuff, the Rickwood Classic uh, of 2010, which is celebrating the 100th anniversary of Rickwood Field, which opened in 1910. And, uh, you know, visit the Chattanooga, which asterisk, I still have not seen an official game. If you want to say I'm a liar, liar for saying I've been to every ballpark, <laughs> I've been to Chattanooga twice, three times, including an industry event, but never seen a regulation game. And on and on it goes. So please, it's not Ben's Biz on Twitter. It's The Ben's Biz, T-H-E-B-E-N-S-B-I-Z, because Ben's Biz is taken by someone who has never posted and whose avatar is a wad of money. But I will not pay your <laughs> ransom to the fake Ben's Biz, the Ben's Biz, T-H-E-B-E-N-S-B-I-Z. If you're on Instagram, please check it out. Please engage with me. Uh, please give me some feedback on what you want to see there. And uh, this will be an entire off-season project. And hopefully I can uh, build up my following, get a little more Twitter-like in terms of the numbers, and uh, just something to have fun with along the way. The uh, off-season stuff uh, also, of course, includes so much in the rebrand and redesign realm. And we talked about the the new Fredericksburg Nationals last week, the Fred Nats. There's one coming up next week that uh, was a bit controversial when it was announced. The Canapolis Intimidators will uh, rebrand, uh, coinciding with a move on their end. Uh, and that will happen actually a week from today. We're recording on the 16th. That's set to come out on the 23rd. Uh, what are, what's the final stage looking like for Canapolis? Yeah, that's next on the rebranding calendar. Um, you mentioned it was a little uh, controversial when the team for you know they're moving the Intimidators are moving to a new ballpark, um, you know, so big part of all this. Uh, but you know they were the Intimidators as a reference to Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, a lot of people were kind of sad to see you know he was a local, you know, a local to Canapolis, and people had a lot of pride in uh, the Intimidators name and how it referenced uh, their hometown hero Dale Earnhardt Jr. But it's a new stadium, Dale new Earnhardt era, senior. and. It, Oh, senior. I'm sorry. Yeah, Thank, senior, you. Right. Thank, junior, Thank you. Junior Junior is good to mention because he kind of weighed in on this back early on in the season and said that he was he was bummed about it, basically. Yeah, he did, which, you know, certainly flan the uh, flan the fames, <laughs> <laughs> fanned the flames uh, <clears throat> of the reaction it was getting, the negative reactions it was getting, uh, you know, when Dale Earnhardt Jr. himself weighed in. Excuse me for referring to Dale Earnhardt Jr. earlier when I meant senior. Anyhow. That is what it is. It's a new era, new ballpark. And if you go to the team's web webpage, uh, you know, if there was an autoplay, you'd imagine some uh, 
calliope music and uh, the you know sh- distant shouts of vendors and an excited murmur of the crowd. There, it's very much a, a old timey circus kind of theme they got going here. And it says the big reveal, come one, come all. So that gives you uh, as much of a hint as you're probably going to get before Wednesday over kind of the direction they may be going. But uh, that'll be an exciting one. And I do want to take the opportunity to, while I do believe the Intimidators needed a rebrand and that angry K, Canapolis K primary logo maybe ran its course, but I always love that angry K. And um, I'm going to enjoy it for the next couple days while it's still the team's primary logo and maybe, you know, shed a private tear when that's no longer the primary logo. And if you don't have that logo in your mind, just Google Canapolis Intimidators and take a look at that angry K. A lot of people have said it's uh, akin to an anthropomorphic high heel shoe. A lot of people. So many people have said that. With teeth. Yeah. With teeth. teeth. Hmm. I had not thought of it that way before. Now that's going to be all I can see. Uh, Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. He's on Instagram at The Ben's Biz. And you can find uh, all of the posts from Ben's travels over there. And uh, you can check out the site as well, milb.com slash Ben's Biz, where all of the content is headed. And uh, excited to talk about the the next rebrand coming up next week, Ben. We'll do it then. Yeah, we'll talk about Canapolis. We'll talk about so many things. We'll have an emotional journey as we do each and every week. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Big thanks again to Brandon Marsh for joining the show and Benjamin Hill as well. We got some programming notes for the show before the show. Next week, business as usual, correct? Yes, we will be doing the the Milby Award Show. Uh, which we break down all of right. our picks go and my tuxedo. yeah, what you guys should consider for the uh, for the major categories for Milby's. So tune in next week for that. But uh, in two weeks we will be off. I will be on vacation. Tyler will be in Mexico uh, covering the Premier Twelve tournament that we talked about before. Um, so we're going to take a little bit of a hiatus in two weeks. But you still have one more week of us. So don't don't Not worry too rid much. of us yet. Yeah. So there. Um, but yeah, we're excited next week. Got to get my, uh, tuxedo to the dry cleaners and, uh, wear it for this audio format podcast. What have you done in that tuxedo since last year? (laughs) You don't want to know my friend. (laughs) Oh man. No, I got a dog. There's dog hair. on. Oh, sure. Yeah. Easy excuse. Blame it on the dog. It's an easy excuse to, to justify the expense of my fake tuxedo. Obviously. Of course. You know. Uh, but yeah, that'll do it. Get in touch with the show podcast at MILB.com. If you would like, Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am at Tyler Mon, and we will talk to you next week. Oh, 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 oh,